Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. When you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. You've probably all found yourselves at one time or another unprepared. You did not have enough gas in the tank. You did not know the answers for the test. You didn't take enough provisions for the trip. You did not have enough of what you needed to do what you needed to do. Today I'm preaching on the parable of the ten virgins, which highlights the importance of being prepared for Jesus' return. That God wants every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus to be prepared for Christ's return whenever it happens. So we're going to read Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that is strong. We thank you, Lord, for these words that we just read. Lord, the power with which you gave them, the power that is in them. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would teach us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are right about the midpoint of the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. This is Jesus' last discourse. It's regarding the last days, and it's regarding being ready for His return. Now, the majority of chapters 24 and 25 is about keeping watch and being ready. And Jesus is really driving one point home using seven examples. We looked at four of them last week. We're going to look at one of them today. The fifth is a parable. It's a story with a main point. Let me just say, this parable may be the most important parable you ever consider. I'm serious. Like others, this parable has been the subject of no small debate and differing views that seem to multiply like rabbits, pretty much. Lots of views on this parable. And I want to talk briefly, before we dive into this passage, about how we should handle parables. How you should handle parables. It's been a long time since we were in Matthew chapter 13 where there was a whole bunch of parables. But I want to talk about what we should do with parables. First and foremost, handle them with care. Handle with care. 
like you would a live grenade, pretty much, or a stick of dynamite, or fireworks that are already lit, or a hot potato. Handle with care. Don't be careless with parables. Don't be sloppy with parables. Don't make them say what you want them to say. Go for God's intended meaning. Handle them accurately. Remember this, the biblical parable is a story with one main idea. One main point, not 15. One idea. Now there are usually allegorical aspects and certain things stand for certain things just like in this parable today. But just don't go overboard with that and try to find every single detail having to mean something big. A lot of the details in parables just keep the story rolling. They're, they're the context, they're the, the packaging of the story to get that one point across. Now having said that, the parable of the ten virgins fits well into the sequence of examples that we've already seen. Uh, we have in chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, we saw the idea that only God knows when Jesus is coming back Therefore, we must be ready. We must keep watch. And he gave a historical reference about the days of Noah, how there was a sudden destruction upon those that were unconcerned. We saw the example of people working together and the sudden division that's going to take place when Jesus returns. We saw the example of the thief in the night and the suddenness of intrusion that will happen. And then he gave a parable of the two workers, two servants, and the sudden conclusion that God will bring about at the end of time. In that parable, there was the faithless servant who boldly sins. He, he doesn't think that his, his uh, master is really coming back, and so he doesn't change his ways and thinks his master will be gone a long time and suffers the consequence. Then you've got the wise servant in that parable who refuses to be caught unaware and continues to lovingly serve his master while his master is gone. Now, the bottom line on the first four examples we've looked at is this. They warn of the unexpectedness of Jesus' return. Not that we should passively just watch, but that we should actively do what God's called us to do until he returns. And it drives home the need for readiness in case Jesus returns sooner than we expect. The parable we're looking at today stresses readiness in the face of an unexpected long delay in case he comes back later than we expect. So you notice the differences between these two parables. It's really the same point, but saying be ready in case he comes sooner. And now today, be ready unless he com- in, in case he comes later. It's about being really hyper-vigilant about being found ready for Christ's return. So let's look at verse 1. It begins with the word then. Then. It, it signifies uh, the words at that time. The best way to take that is it's a reference to the coming of the Son of Man. That's the context with which Jesus has been speaking. And Jesus tells this parable to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven will be like when he returns. Think about what Jesus is doing here. He is wrapping up his earthly ministry. And after this, everything will have to do with the cross. And he is speaking very strongly to his disciples. And he speaks very strongly to us through this parable. Where were they? They were near Jerusalem. They were looking at the buildings of Jerusalem, the capital city. It's like if we went to Sacramento or Washington, D.C. and was looking at the magnificent buildings. They're looking at the buildings of the temple and they asked Jesus a three-part question. 
When will these things be? When will it happen that the temple will be destroyed? And what will be the sign of the coming of the Son of Man and of the end of the age? And Jesus is really correcting and prepping his disciples for the end of time, for the end of the world. What kind of people ought they to be in light of his return? Jesus uses the word, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven in verse 1. It is a phrase that is only used in Matthew's gospel 32 times. This is the last time it's used. He says the kingdom of heaven will be like the story of the ten virgins. The story is based on the Near Eastern wedding that would be very familiar to Jesus' original hearers. The festivities, which would sometimes last several days, would formally get underway at the groom's house. The bridegroom, with some of his close friends, would leave his home to go to the bride's home for the ceremony. After that, a welcoming party would escort the newly married couple to the bride's, excuse me, to the bridegroom's home for a a long reception. So the process that Jesus is explaining is a procession that would go through the streets of the city after dark to the bridegroom's home for the wedding celebration, the reception. And everyone in the procession was expected to bring a light. Mag light, flashlight, candle, whatever. Uh, Bring your own torch. And those without one would be assumed to be party crashers, wedding crashers. And Jesus says there are ten virgins in this story. We would call them bridesmaids. They are part of the wedding parade. And there are obvious similarities uh, with these, these ten virgins. First and foremost is they were all invited to the wedding. They were all part of the wedding party. They're the, the bride's attendants. And they, so that, you know what that means. They got to wear a weird colored dress that cost them a lot of money that they would never wear again. They're in the wedding party and they form the lead procession to the groom's house for the reception. So they're all invited and they all seem interested. They all took their lamps. They're along for the ride. They're going to the party. They're going to the reception. And and the attendants that would lead this nighttime procession, this parade with lamps. By the way, the lamps were probably not the little tiny ones that we think of with the little wick and the oil, but probably like a torch with rags um, uh, wrapped around the top and soaked in olive oil. All that good olive oil going to waste. You need some bread with that, I'll tell you. Um, I'm getting hungry now. I wasn't hungry first hour, but now I'm hungry. And now, now you got me thinking about bread and olive oil. Man. Um, so you've got this, this torch, this you know, fire on a stick pr- pretty much, and, and the lamps were... were you know, you had to have one with you. And so it seemed like they're, they're all in, interested in what's going on, and they were all identified the same way. They're, they're the ten virgins, and they're going to meet the bridegroom. They're the wedding party. So they're seemingly engaged in the same pursuits. What they're standing for here, what the ten virgins stand for, is the visible church. The visible church, the professing church. Those who say, we are followers of Christ and He's coming back for us. Now, what what we know already from what Jesus has told us is that that visible church is comprised of wheat and weeds. Real and fake Christians. 
people who say they're Christians but aren't and people who say they're Christians and are they look similar but they're diametrically opposed all ten virgins are here today all ten virgins are always in the professing church those who profess faith in Christ so they're all invited they're all interested and they're all identified in the same way and there's a bridegroom that they're waiting for verse 1 tells us that they're waiting for the bridegroom they're going out to meet the bridegroom there's probably a time that they had talked about in this story but we know who the bridegroom is we know it's Jesus and Messiah as bridegroom is a is a common biblical figure that go with me to Isaiah 54 we'll see a couple Old Testament passages that that uh explain this Isaiah 54 and we'll begin at verse 5 God is speaking of the eternal covenant of peace that he will make with his people and he says for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer the God of the whole earth he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God He goes on to say, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So the idea of Messiah as bridegroom is common. Also look at Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as the young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. One more place I'll have you go is Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea chapter 2, in verse 19, God is speaking of the mercy that he will have on his people. And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. The idea here is that Jesus is the Messiah, who is the bridegroom. And the plot of this story, this parable of the ten virgins, isn't about the oil primarily. Most people think it is, but what the hinge is, the plot turns on one hinge in this story. It's the bridegroom's delay. It's the fact that he's delayed. uh, the, The NIV says he was a long time in coming. In a real sense, by the way, it is the bridegroom's delay that distinguishes the wise from the foolish virgins. And this is where we see some obvious differences between the ten. First of all, they weren't all prepared. All of them were not prepared. Look at verse 2. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. The foolish uh, take their, their lamps and they forget to bring extra oil. See, the wise are called wise because they prepared extra oil for the bridegroom's delayed coming in case he was delayed. Wise members of a bridal party would carry an extra um, vial or or container of oil in case the torches needed to be relit or the the lamps needed to be refilled it was a flask with an additional supply of oil 
When I was a kid, we had a 1972 Chevy pickup that had an a, uh, auxiliary gas tank on the other side of the, of the pickup. And so we could put a lot of gas in this pickup truck and go on a really long trip. So, you know, it's almost like, let's say you're on a long bike ride and you take a bunch of bottles of water. You take extra water. You take more than you think you need just in case you need it. You want to be prepared. By the way, a lot of people say, well, oh, the oil means good works or the Holy Spirit. I say the oil means what was in the lamps. It's part of the story. It's, it's, it's oil. It's, it's what they needed to light the lamps. And they didn't have it. They didn't bring enough. It's part of the narrative showing that the, the, they were unprepared for the delay. So the foolish don't think to bring extra oil, which was kind of an obvious preparation if you were going to be in a wedding party. You're going to take a night hike with the wedding party? You should probably bring extra oil. So Jesus calls them foolish, which is where we get our English word moron. It's a Greek word moros. Here's words you, don't, you tell your kids not to say. Moron and stupid. That's what they, he's telling them that they are. And then you notice in verse 5 that both the wise and the foolish doze off. They fall asleep. Plenty of people have made a big deal about this. You know what it means? They fell asleep. Because that's kind of what you would do if it gets late at night and you get tired. And, and the point that Jesus has been making in 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 these two chapters is you don't know the moment that i'm coming back and and the the parable before he's saying look i might come back sooner than you think well here i might come back later than you think but either way be ready so they're sleeping everyone sleeps no one's in trouble for sleeping here all right yeah i think about it sometimes we, we think oh jesus is coming back and so we imagine in our minds that it's when we're wide awake and we're fully dressed but it could be that Jesus comes back when you're asleep. Think about it. All were not prepared. And secondly, all were not appropriately concerned. Look at verse 6. At midnight, and by the way, midnight is the symbol of the end times final bell. The cry rings out. The, literally, the cry has arisen just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, a shout. He says, he's here. Basically, let's go meet him. So the bridegroom is a long time in coming, but he, he returns, and all the virgins wake up and trim their lamps. They get their torches ready, but the lamps of the foolish virgins quickly go out because they didn't have the oil, the extra oil. Probably were soaked in some, or they had some. If it was, even if it was a little, a little lamp, they would have something in there, but then they quickly go out. And what we see is the wise virgins can't help the foolish ones. They say, we, we can't give you any of ours. Which we think is kind of selfish, right? Like, come on, share. We always tell our kids to do that too, right? Share. Don't call people names and share. Well, here, they're getting called names and they won't share. But what they're saying basically is we can't have faith for you and for us both. You got to bear your own load. You're accountable to God. We can't do your homework for you. Foolishness breeds more foolishness. The drastic folly here, the F, is this. No extra oil. Should have brought it. Obvious point. And, and think about Jesus talking about him coming back and the advance warning he's given that he will be delayed. It's right here. 
We've had it. For over 2,000 years, people have stumbled over this. That's why 2 Peter 3 says that scoffers in the last days will come with their scoffing and say, where's the promise of his return? He's already said there's going to be a delay. You better be ready for that. Sooner, later, I'm not going to tell you. And then third thing about the difference is that they were not granted entrance. There was uh, exclusion. They're, they're basically, you, you can't come in, you can come in. It's like a bouncer at the door. The foolish were unprepared for the delay, therefore they were shut out. The bridegroom comes, verse 10, the wise virgins enter, the door is what? Shut. Just like when the ark door got shot. Shut. People are banging on the door trying to get in and it's too late. No second chance. The cries of the unprepared foolish latecomers. Lord, Lord, open the door. Ignored. Ignored. By the way, the refusal to to recognize these foolish um, people is not a heartless rejection of their lifelong wish to go into the kingdom. Oh, we've been planning our whole lives. You've got to let us in. No. Despite appearances, they never made preparation for the coming of the kingdom. The idea is they never believed. There's no access for that. God's justice will be in full bloom on that day. Johnny Cash, in the last album before he died, the title cut of that album, uh, The Man Comes Around, it's all about Jesus coming back. There's a line in that song. Um, the virgins are all trimming their wicks. And another line. And everyone will not be treated all the same. On that day, there will be people excluded. The door will be shut. It's the way it's going to be. So what does it mean to be prepared for Christ's coming? How do you prep for Jesus' return? In light of this most important of parables let me share with you three things about that number one how do you how do you prep here's how you prep for jesus's return number one be truly assured that you are saved and people will ask well can i truly be sure if i am saved the answer is definitely you need to be sure you need to know some things by the way you need to know some facts that god is a sovereign king what a king is, sovereign. And, 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 and people are hell-bent sinners. And Jesus is a merciful Savior who died for sinners. And God has a purpose, and we have a problem, and Christ has the power to save all who want to be saved. Hebrews 10.22 says you can have full assurance of faith. There are a lot of people who who live without assurance. One of the things I'm really concerned about is Christians who don't know they have assurance of salvation, don't have, don't have a sense of assurance of salvation. They don't know the teaching in the Bible of the eternal security of believers. Acts chapter 16, 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in his finished work. Don't trust yourself to save yourself. And, and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. John 3.16, a verse I didn't even know all the way through before I became a believer at age 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. Titus chapter 3. He saves us not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast about getting themselves to heaven, basically. You should be assured, you need to be assured that you are saved. Why should you follow Jesus? Let's say you say, but why should I follow him? Well, he's the king. And here's an interesting point that is made in this parable that we might not have thought about very often. He is an engaged king. He will be a married king one day. His bride is his church who trust in him, elect from every ethnicity. I think one of the most profound aspects of this passage is that Jesus' word to us as we await the wedding day, that the blood-bought bride of Christ awaits, and here is what he says to us. He says, there is a kingdom, and there is a king equals Messiah equals bridegroom, bridegroom and there there are 10 virgins standing for the visible church and and the the 10 are not by the way the bride the bride makes no appearance in this parable this is about how we the bride of christ should prepare to meet him and our job is to be prepared to be ready there is this sovereignly delayed bridegroom jesus and the ten, the, the professing, visible, waiting church. The wise are believers. The foolish are not. The shut door is the end of time with no second chance. And the I don't know you is Jesus' certification of an unbeliever's doom. And the bottom line is we must be awake and alert and absolutely committed to literally standing on our tiptoes, eagerly anticipating the promised bodily, visible, imminent return of Jesus Christ. We must be prepared by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. So you prep by, for Jesus' return by being truly assured that you are saved. Secondly, you prep for Jesus' return by being truly concerned whether you are saved. I am very concerned about Christians who don't have assurance of salvation, like I said, who don't know the doctrine of eternal security. I am equally as concerned about people who say they're Christians but it's not quite clear that they really have any concern whether that is true or not why were the five foolish unconcerned until it was too late no less than the apostle Paul was very concerned about his own salvation he says in Philippians 3, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that is derived from the law. 
I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to say some things today that you don't usually hear me say. And I want you to really think it through with me. It's that important. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Here is the Apostle Paul writing his heart out as the Holy Spirit gives him utterance. And he is writing words about a test that both he and everyone who claims the name of Christ needs to take often. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. He's writing to the professing church. He is, he is, he is pouring out his heart and God's heart for the professing church, the visible church. He says in verse 7, We pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul was very concerned, and so should we be as well. You know, we always say to people, hey, don't be afraid. You know, do not fear for I am with you. I, I mean, I, I, God gave me the, 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 the strength to overcome my fear of flying. He overcame the fear as I submitted myself to him and walked in truth and victory in Christ. And we always say, don't fear. I'm going to tell you what you should be very afraid of. I want everyone very afraid. If, if I will be very happy if you are very afraid of this. We should be afraid to not be in the group of the wise. We should be afraid for a shut door at the end of time. If you're afraid of that, good. I'm so glad you made my day. I'm afraid of that. And that doesn't take anything away from assurance of salvation and and the doctrine of eternal security. See, if we smugly presume that we are in, that's bad. And if, if we don't watch, that's bad. See, watch doesn't equal passive smugness. Watch means to be spiritually awake, to be active, to be engaged in the process, to, to know, love, and, and trust Jesus. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see side by side, Paul talking about pretty much this very thing. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 12. Therefore, he says, my beloved, I care about you so much, I've got to tell you this, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, uh, gives the assurance in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But he's saying, you work out your own salvation. Don't work for it. Work it out. He's saying, you should be afraid not to be in the group of the wise. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear that you might not be in. 
That's watchfulness over your own soul. And we should be just as watchful for the souls of others. We should be very concerned. The Bible says, Make all the more sure of his calling of you, beloved, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Make sure you're called. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Praise God, God watches over us. Psalm 32, 8, he says, I will guide you with my eye. I'm going to guide you. We cannot escape this truth. I know that the evangelical church has become very attuned to the beginning of the Christian life without, and without the, the same concern for continuing the Christian life. God is more concerned with the continuance than the entrance, than the beginning. Faith must be shown by works. It's very clear. Some people want to throw James out of the Bible. But James 2.14 is very clear. Faith shows itself in works. Faith without works is dead. If there's no root, there won't be any fruit. So you need to have faith. And if you have faith, it will show by your good works. That's why in the context of Ephesians 2, when it says you've been saved by grace through faith, verse 10, the next verse says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to follow the Holy Spirit. We're to, to walk in, in the Spirit. That's why Titus 3.8, right after God says that you're saved by God's mercy and not by your works, says that, that God's people should engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be indifferent to the condition of your soul. As elders in a church that we are charged with the responsibility to make sure when someone joins the church that they've got a testimony, that they know Jesus. So here at Grace, we, we have people write something out and they fill out a form. And we look at it and we say, wow, that's great. Why don't you tell us about that? But at the end of the day, everyone sitting in that room, including us, it's not our words that create the truth. Which means that the church is always divided. Even at a church, at a church like this, where everybody's getting along, it's, it's still five versus five. The five wise and the five foolish. The, the, the visible church is always divided because there are wheat and there are weeds. There's the real, there is the fake. Mixed in till the end of time. When I was a brand new believer, I read... Um, some writings of a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. Scared me to death. The guy was an old revivalist preacher guy that just was really just, you got to do this and that. But recently I read a quote of his that I like. It says, the church used to be a lifeboat rescuing the perishing. Now she is a cruise ship recruiting the promising. We've got to be aligned with God's intent for his bride. You stay prepped for Jesus' return by being truly concerned whether you're saved or not. The unconcerned quite possibly might be the unsaved. I am fully convinced of what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign grace in, in relation to salvation. 
All the things the Bible teaches, predestination, foreknowledge, election, regeneration, chosen from the foundation of the world. And at the same time, only those who want to be saved will be saved. And only those who want to be sanctified will be sanctified. You need to be truly concerned whether you're saved. If you are professing the name of Jesus, your life must show it. God requires it. The Bible teaches it very clearly. God is the determiner, the leader, the teacher, the the bridegroom. We are the yielders and the cooperators and, and the disciples. I like it how one person said it. God has saved us by the power of the gospel. And the Lord has given us passion for the gospel. And he empowers us to preach the gospel. And he implants in us a purpose that is grounded in and based on the gospel, that should become your whole life. Paul, that was his whole life. He says, I I will most gladly spend and be spent for the souls of others. And he's the one saying, I'm going to take this test. I'm going to take this test. I'm going to test myself to see if I'm in the faith. You know what a lot of people do? So, well, I, I prayed a prayer a long time ago at the Billy Graham crusade. But you know what? I'm good it doesn't matter how I live. I can just keep on going the way I want because I can bank on that, health, that insurance policy I got way back then. That is not what the Bible teaches about being a follower of Christ. One more thing about what does it mean to be prepared for Christ's coming. It goes right along with it. Basically, be fully engaged in following Christ. You say you're a follower, be fully engaged in following Christ. Then that means you're going to, that when you say I'm a follower of Christ, I'm going to live a life of total surrender and yieldedness. And yes, I sin. But here's the thing. The church is really focused in on sin a lot of the times instead of on who you are in Christ. We're focused on what people are doing and what I'm doing wrong and what God wants us focused on Jesus. Total surrender to Christ. An internal reality that shows you know that old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating? The proof of the preparation is in the living. You prep for a good reception at Christ's return by living in Christ, abiding in Christ. That's the best preparation. Do what Christians do. If you're not doing what Christians do, what are you doing? Here's a question you can ask yourself. Am I becoming more or less like Jesus in my life? Is there a sense of assurance and security of being saved in my life? Or is there there this nagging uneasiness when my head hits the pillow every night about my relation to Christ? You can't beg, borrow, or steal true faith. You can't go on fumes. You can't go on history. God is not giving out lifetime achievement awards. God deals with present realities. Only God knows those who are His. And there will be no second chances at the end of time. I said before that the oil doesn't equal good works or the Holy Spirit. But every true believer will be trusting the Holy Spirit to produce good works in their life. The proof of life will be evident. Today what I wanted you to get is that God wants every person who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ to really be prepared for Christ's return. 
And that means landing solidly in his camp with his people. And being lovingly preaching the gospel to all people. We've got to offer God's solution to sin to ourselves first, to our households, and to anyone we come in contact with. And as we do, we've got to choose our words very carefully. I think we need to be sure that our hearers know how much we grieve with God over the condition of those who are toying with eternal separation from God. And how it affects parents and children and grandchildren and even generations. How decisions now affect the future. Everyone's going to bear their own load, the Bible says. You're accountable to God, and you can't do it for anybody else. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. We are waiting for his promised, visible, bodily, imminent return. So like those signs on the road that says, expect delays. Should we expect delays in Christ's return? No. No. We should expect imminence. But prep for possible delay do you know that jesus could come back now plenty of people say "Uh uh-uh because my end times chart isn't fully filled out yet i don't want to be in your lifeboat things are happening since jesus uttered these words there have been things happening that are pointing to the fact that he could return at any moment Every word of his is true. None are going to fall to the ground. He says, you do not know the day or the hour. Don't give yourself some false hope that you have time. Now, we are living in the last days. And Jesus has not returned yet. And we count his delay, as the Bible says, patience. Until all the elect come to repentance. But we must be extra diligent. Really, one eye on the horizon and one eye on the work. I, said, I think I said last week, it's like driving. Know what's in front of you and know what's out on the horizon. It's like riding your bike. Know what's right in front of you so you don't crash. Know what's out on the horizon so you don't crash. Short and long-term understanding at the same time. Aware of present and future realities at the same time. It's like Nehemiah. If you're reading through the Bible with us, we're in Nehemiah right now. And here's Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And they start building and they get the the wall maybe half high and and the opponents come up and say, you're lame and your wall is so sad that if a fox jumped through, it would break it down. Now what did they do? Nehemiah set a guard with swords against their enemies and they prayed and asked God to fight for them. And it says that they carried on the work with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. That's what we need to be doing. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, and doing the work that God gave you to do until he returns. Ephesians, uh, excuse me, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 starts this way. Now concerning the times and the seasons, beloved, the same two words that are used in Acts chapter 1, Chronos and Kairos, the times and the epochs. Concerning these things, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I think in verse 12, we see the most terrifying words at the end of time when Jesus comes back. 
I never knew you. You were part of the visible church, but not the invisible. You had religion. You attended church. You gave. You even served. You had the form. You had the outward appearance. And man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He had no new heart. Unregenerate. No new birth. Just a facade. A mask. A shiny lamp with nothing inside. A flashlight without batteries. A car without fuel. You were lip-syncing that you knew Jesus. He will say, I never knew you. We should be afraid of that. We should fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And we should, in response, run to Jesus. Run to the merciful Savior. And by the way, it's not about how many people walk an aisle or say a prayer. You can do those things, but you better make sure if you do that it's for reals. No pretending, no, no playing church. It's about how many truly believe and are saved. What makes a difference? It's oil. That was it. The only difference between the five and the other five is oil. Didn't prepare enough oil for the delay. It's all. The determining factor, what was it? Again, it's the divided church. The professing, visible, five on five (laughs) Now, think about it. Here we are, a group gathered. And, and most of us are going to say, hey, the bridegroom's coming for me. I'm a believer. Okay? Now, the only difference between the ten was that some had prepared by bringing more oil. There was no blatant opposition. No, no blatant disrespect. Just negligence. Just slothfulness. Just laziness. It goes back to the parable of the seeds and the soils. Seed on the shallow ground no root received the word with joy religious but not saved didn't have Jesus and the difference by the way was not the sins they committed remember we always focus on the sins we get the church the professing church gets hung up on everyone's sins this is a focus on Jesus focus on faith what is your faith that you claim to have drive you to be and do does it drive you to seek God's will does it drive you to pray? Does it drive you to go to the God's word? Does it drive you to, to share Christ with others? Does it drive you to, to submit to Christ? Good. That's what it's supposed to do. It was all about what they did in response to Christ. Faith or not. Impersonator, imposter, or the real deal. We focus on beginning the Christian life. God focuses on continuing in Christ. The biggest question is, where are you with Jesus right now? There's your oil. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we want to engage in, in awestruck worship of, of our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that the wise inherit salvation. The wise are blessed. We want to be those who enter into the joy of their master. We want to be part of the bride that the bridegroom is coming for. 
Lord, may we fall in love with Jesus afresh today. May we know and love him because he first knew and loved us. May we stand back in absolute sheer wonder at undeserved grace. 